0: So hello and welcome to this episode of the Sunflower Allotment Podcast and I'm really really thrilled to say this evening we have a fantastic guest to the podcast who has very kindly agreed to talk to us. She is an incredibly influential gardener and writer and if you shop for and eat vegetables, which is of course all of us, let alone grow vegetables, you will have experienced the impact of her work. Uh, Even without knowing it. Several years ago, when I first got an allotment, I was given a book called Grow Your Own Vegetables by Joy Larkham. It's quite a modest book, not a big, glossy, coffee table style of book full of pictures, but it does have lovely drawings. And I have many books on gardening, but I can honestly say it's the book that is always with me and in my rucksack and in the allotment shed and often. often by my bedside table and it goes with me everywhere. It's the only book I refer to all the time and I think it's the best book for growing vegetables and for allotment tiers. So I'm really delighted to welcome Joy Larkham to the podcast and thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening, Joy. So before we get into the uh, talking to Joy, a tiny little bit of background. If you haven't heard of Joy Larkham, well, one, we want to put that right with this podcast and, and um, spread the recognition that she's thoroughly deserved. Uh, but also, it's useful before listening to, to, to know a bit more about her. So, in 1976, 1977, Joy packed up her husband and two, two children and spent a year traveling around Europe researching growing methods. Vegetable growing and seed production. This spawned lots of later trips um, in, in China and, and in the States. Um, but this was a kind of seminal moment in that this tour, from this tour, uh, books, books came out, there was writings, there was articles, and uh, a continued interest in, in travel and learning about gardening from other gardeners across the world, really. But this first trip is what we want to talk about tonight with Joy. Uh, and be- before before we start asking questions, I just want to say, um, just so that you know, Joy has also written regularly uh, for the Observer. I mentioned I mentioned uh, we were talking to Joy Larkham, to my mother, an avid Guardian and Observer reader from the seventies, and she was just went, "Oh my goodness, I remember reading Joy's articles <laughs> in the 70s. So that's fantastic. Joy's also been a regular contributor to Kitchen Garden Magazine and the organ- Organic Gardening Magazine. So it's a really warm welcome on a cold winter's night to the queen of vegetable growing. Uh, thank you, Joy, thank you for joining us. And I think before we um, before we go any further, Tim, you have a, uh, uh, you want to get off with a question.
1: Um, so yes, can you describe where you live now and what your garden and gardening is like these days.
2: well, uh, first of all, thank you very much for your warm welcome from um, Norfolk. We used to live in Suffolk, so yeah, feel you we were neighbors in the past. but in, in um, uh, twenty years ago now, my husband and I retired to West Cork in Ireland. and um, we our garden is very near the sea. We can hear we can hear the sea, we can't see it we wouldn't have been able to afford the house so we could have seen the sea, but um, that brought its own problems. And really all our gardening here was, has been molded by the fact that um, salt winds blow into our garden, the far end, all the trees are at a 45 degree angle and everything was designed to um, create wind breaks and um, make it, just a place where we could grow things shelter was the absolute the key to starting our garden it's a gentle slope and now i'm nearer 90s and 80 and actually getting into the garden itself has become quite problematic it's very very fertile soil so um it's it's been a question of taming the wind enough to create shelter and we actually did that primarily by making a very um Making a fan-shaped garden, and all the spokes of the fan are in fact windbreaks in different guises. Um, and also, so a lot of our garden is just I look out on a south-facing, fertile, sloping fan. And but also nearer the house, we've absolutely gone into raised beds for um, for growing our vegetables. And um, in the end. Um, My poor husband, he he dreaded it when I said, Don, I've had an idea because the idea would be something like, let's build a whole set of raised beds near the house and have a little decorative potager near the house. So it's basically a potager of raised beds all uh, near the house and then a big fan with colourful beds stretching ahead of us Um, uh, and a, a great deal of fruit. It forms the, uh, the spokes of the wheel of the of the so-called fan. And everything was designed for old age. We were in our mid-60s when we moved here. So it's all been um, espaliers and cordons and um, things we could, in theory, reach. Except with um, the fertile soil, a lot has grown out of reach. So that's kind of the garden in a nutshell.
1: Fabulous. Thank you so much, Joy. I'm sure Rachel might want to jump in here as a as a gardener herself, but we've had lots of people on the podcast ask about planning their allotment and planning their allotment garden. So it's wonderful to hear that, that you were you were planning um, so far in advance and, and how you were planning for wind as well. So that's really interesting.
2: And we did also build a green greenhouse alongside. There was a very nasty spot between the house and the stables and in the end a, a lovely guy um built us a tailor-made greenhouse to fit in there with its own raised beds and and now i can of uh, uh, getting about it's difficult i can still just about get to the greenhouse and it's been a complete and utter lifesaver um so that's that's the most productive bit currently um apart from a few fat slugs that managed to oodle their way into there <laughs> i i
3: read an article recently uh joy about you and about your current setup with your greenhouse connected to your outbuildings or, and your house and thought that sounded wonderful especially thinking about gardening going forward and planning for what you're capable of doing i suppose my question sort of <laughs> given that you've sort of planned ahead for future years we're re- also really interested in looking back Um, what sort of first started you out gardening and inspired you or started it all off for you, I suppose?
2: Well, um, I always say that what started it was, um, you know, I was a wartime baby and my father was in the war and uh, we'd moved to the countryside, we moved to near Reading, which was supposed to be out of the range of bombs at the time. And I remember him coming back, I was about five or six and digging up the field and giving me the wireworms to take to the hens, and that is my first recollection of gardening. Whether he was trying to get rid of me or the wireworms, I've been wondering in, in my old age. You know, when kids come around and help—in quotes—but um, that, that—that was that was my first memory of gardening.
0: So, just fast-forwarding a little bit, your your approach has been gardening and, and writing has been very much around research and trying things out in practice to find what works for you and, and then writing this up. Uh, what started you down, down this route?
2: I, I think about it, I, I think possibly you're just born with um, a curiosity gene, you know, you're you're either the sort of person who wants to know what's going on behind things or, or not. And again, with my dad, it was a big influence on me, um I, I did eventually decide to go to Y College and do horticulture. But I remember before going, we had a garden in, in Berkshire that it, it was absolutely riddled with bindweed, you know, that they called it Withywind in, in Berkshire, which is a very good name for it. And we had a plant and we actually knocked knocked off its top regularly and counted it. I remember doing this before we went to college to see how often it would actually break through again in spite of us having cultivated. Knocked off its top. I think it was something like forty times, <laughs> but the, but for that kind of um, experimenting to find out why things happen, it's kind of ingrained and um, has stayed. I did for many years. I was a journalist in other fields, and it was always kind of curiosity to know about about people living different ways, about what goes on behind the scenes. It's it's still kind of slightly embedded I and mean, even today I, I I did manage to do a germination test on some seeds which didn't seem to come up and I'm cross with them. You you don't totally lose that um desire to get to the bottom of things. I, I think that's the fundamental reason.
1: Joy, could I um pick up on something you said then about journalism. How how did you actually get into writing, into journalism itself?
2: Oh, a very kind of um, roundabout route. And by the way, The Observer, I didn't write, I was writing about careers for The Observer. And and my main gardening writing has actually probably been for the RHS journal, you know, the um, um, the Royal Horticultural Society. Journal. Well, I was working over in Canada and in a library and um, uh, as an assistant librarian, being rather badly paid. And I came back to the UK thinking, well, I'll qualify as a librarian, but... um, thank goodness they had no spaces in the library school at the time and i'd kind of every year written to discovery magazine you know the science magazine it no longer exists saying um you know i want to be a journalist and and write and they had they'd been taken over by a company and had a gap a two month gap before the new staff um came along and i kind of Written to them yet again and said, I I want to be a journalist and can I work for you? And they said, Okay, for two months. And so I went in and and did two months just a dog's body doing every absolutely everything in the gap. And I just thought, This is me, I absolutely love it. And when the time came to you know, the staff turned up. For a while, I was a secretary on the magazine, completely terrible secretary, because I couldn't do shorthand. I was getting contact lenders I couldn't see. You know, I was completely useless. And the the vacancy turned up on an industrial magazine, and I got onto that. And that's how I got into writing, really. I just loved doing it. And then eventually, after getting, you know, I moved to the country and got married and got a job on, um, a freelance job on, on, on a... Gardening magazine um I oh, can't even remember its name now but you know, slowly got into garden writing and have been there ever since really.
3: <laughs> I think we also wanted to ask you um specifically about your grand vegetable tour and um we're sort of aware of the impact that that's had on our eating habits and growing habits in the UK so we sort of wanted to know a little bit more about was sort of what your intentions were for the trip and whether whether you'd set out um, planning on it ending up being as influential as it was or whether it was a big adventure, or a little bit more about your trip. Well
2: yes, it was 1976. It was a I think it was the case of all sorts of factors came together. You know, Don and I got married in our 30s. He was actually American. Um, <clears throat> and we'd both been travelers before we got married and kind of had a yen to travel together at the same time you know Lawrence Hills who started the organic um the organic gardening center was agitating to collect um old i don't know whether they called heirloom varieties or what they were calling them in those days but people were beginning to appreciate the value of the old varieties which were being beginning to be squeezed out by modern varieties of seed you know, they needed collecting um, and then, you know, it was, I had been commissioned to write my first book on on gardening. I'd written vegetables from not vegetables, um, first of book vegetables for small gardens. I'd been kind of commissioned to to write it, and had become aware of, of more intensive systems taking place in old fashioned systems on the continent, and then also my the. Alan Jackson always always knows Jacko, who's been my lecturer at Y. He said, "Oh, you should go and find you should go and find those um, purple carrots out in Europe." And kind of all sorts of things came together that it was a good time to go and just look at things. It was partly adventure, partly collecting seed old seeds. We got a small grant towards it, and that that was um, on the grounds that we collected seeds and sent them back to the Vegetable Gene Bank, which was by then a national gene bank, was being established at Wellsbourne in, in the UK. So it was a kind of mixture of adventure and purpose and looking for things. And and, then, and also our children were five and seven and we thought it's a case of now or never, you know, later it's too disruptive for them. And Don was was a teacher. So theoretically Don was going to teach them you know, while while we travelled, they were they were amazing. Um, you know, we kept thinking, well, thank God they do get on well because it was, it was tough. You know, a lot of the time really, it was difficult. Um, you know, we were constantly looking for water, for somewhere flat to start. You know, it, they were we were very cramped. We, we in the end we had a van, a Mercedes van, and pulled a caravan. But every corner was packed. It it seems funny talking with the kind of recession looming now because a recession was looming then as well. And uh, we thought we just got to take everything we can with us. You know, I was trying to earn money by... Um, writing articles and we'd rented out our house but the people actually went bankrupt so the money would jump into our bank account and then jump out again you know we got it eventually but it wasn't much help on the road with very little money so um you know we were the the van was absolutely packed solid We, we had four bikes down the middle you know and everything was complicated you know getting in and out but they they were very good. As soon as we stopped anywhere, I, they would jump. They'd play Lego or find something to do, and um, they they were amazing. But they they were getting homesick by the end. You know, if they met anyone English, they'd come rushing over and say, Mommy, there's someone there that speaks English." And I said, "I don't want to speak to anybody who speaks English." <laughs> they were getting homesick. Whereas Don and I could have gone on travelling for another year, I think probably. You know but also kids are a great um melter of ice you know they were people respond to children and and um you know they, they help as well but they they were amazing
0: certainly i i found when traveling having children opens doors that otherwise wouldn't be open and uh, yeah, i can i can see that how that could work you you mentioned just now joy that uh, Jacko sending you off to look for for purple carrots. I mean, how how much of a plan did you have? Do you know where to go, or uh, did you have a route or an itinerary to follow?
2: I when I was I spent a year working on working on the trip, trying to get money um, to to get together, um, just to get information. Kind of really starting in the West, you know, Holland. France. We went to eight countries in the end, and had different, different kinds of sets of contacts I followed up. And in those days, an awful lot of <coughs> UK seed was being grown in Italy and many Italy, France, Hungary. And I had very, very good contacts in the seed trade over here, and they put me in touch with people over there. So there were a whole source of contacts that were allied to the seed companies in the uk most of them now part of much bigger outfits you know it was more personal then um and then things like henry doubleday they had members all over the continent you know some of them were contacts um people said um you know chase up the purple carrot and various other things personal friends and you know you went to a country and you kind of started on on the contacts you had and some led to other things, some were complete blanks or inappropriate. And then when we were completely desperate without contacts in some places, we'd just wander into a market and start talking to people and saying, where did you buy this lettuce? That kind of thing, you know. Um, So when we we got to each country, we'd kind of sit there and think, you know, where the heck do we start? And sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't, you know, it was... um, looking back uh, when i came back from the trip i could remember every single day it used to kind of start with a blank page and you just didn't know what where or what would happen by the end of the day but but now now i get the country's model <laughs> but it was it was a very an incredibly rich experience it was it was amazing
0: yeah well, it sounds sounds incredible and, and um I imagine gardeners the world over just like talking about gardening. Is that what you found when you ran out of contact? You'd find someone who who was be chatty and friendly. Yeah,
2: No, it's a, it's amazing. I mean, since then I went to China, I knew a tiny bit of Chinese, but you just walk into a field and say, you know, how many children do you have? What are you planting? That kind of thing. And you right away they respond, you know. Um, and certainly on the continent, you wander into a field and, you know, Asked somebody what they were doing, and the, co- the the response there would be immediately to tell you how to cook it. You know, well, this, this is so and so. This is how you cook it. You know, Don, Don took over the cooking totally. I'm desperate now that he's no longer with us because um, i have to have to cook. And I, Don, how did you cook this? And still use the battered old cookery book we brought back from the uh, <laughs> from the travels. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a great it's a great common factor really. Can you tell us a little bit more about which
3: countries you visited and any particular experiences that stick in your memory about crops you saw or food that you ate?
2: So we started in Holland because it was a nearby and very organised country and um, got in touch with a man there from a research station who basically organised a trip, you know, all sorts of things for me. And it was only subsequently when I was battling with languages I couldn't speak and you know the unknown I realized what an amazing job he did you know so that was very interesting seeing modern horticulture really you know things like plastic tunnels light years ahead of what we were doing You know, and then then we went to Belgium which was um, nobody had ever this is all pre-email of course pre any I could never afford to phone or anything so communicating was difficult. I'd written hundreds of letters and Belgians don't answer letters at all, you know, but are passionate about food and, you know, we just would phone people and be taken to places and Belgium was a surprisingly rich experience and some of our Belgian contacts have always lasted to this day. Very interesting on fruit, you know, they were doing kind of Integrated pest control, you know, measuring humidity and spraying anywhere necessary years, years before anyone else seemed to think of it, you know. So we had a lot, spent a lot of time in France, huge amount of time. We went right down to the south at some point. We went to France early and then later again in our trip. Portugal was an incredible country. We were there for Christmas and Wild weather, found these amazing old excavated sand dunes with incredible gardens that we called maceras, I don't know how they are. Found loads of old seeds there, you know, um, old varieties that we were in Porto. It was was very, very poor. It was kind of post-revolution, very, very poor. And the first day I walked into a seed shop, I kind of walked across the town and went to a seed shop. They spoke French a lot and I'm reasonably good at French. I went and said, you know, we're looking for old seeds, and they threw their hands in the air and, then the air and said, all oh, our seeds are old, you know. So we collected a lot of old seeds in Portugal. Um, that was a very, very good thing. Well, on that,
1: on that joy, the, the, the seed seems to be the, the main things that came out of this trip and the discoveries that you made. And uh, am I right in saying that discoveries or or these exchanges of seeds had a big impact on, on commercial uh, selling or salad selling in the UK. Would that be right? Well,
2: I think the, um, the old seeds, I mean, in, in Portugal where we did, I think we collected more samples in Portugal than anywhere else. Um, a lot of them were beans and brassicas. And I, I think some of those got taken into breeding programs by Wellsbourne, the research station. The other huge area of seeds, which weren't so much old, they were just in current use a lot, were um, were the salad plants, you know, and that was that was mainly Italy, and France. Things like the chicories, the endives, rocket, which people knew in the UK, um, Belgium. We found things like Claytonia, um, uh, you know, winter what's it called now? Um, um, winter purslane, summer purslane things that were being used. And those, those I think, were um, those plus using cut and come again techniques to grow them. I think that's what we kind of introduced also as, as a result of our of our travels. I mean, you know, we took those back to the UK. We tried to get seed companies interested, but they really weren't terribly interested. Um, until we came across Suffolk Herbs, who lived quite near us in Suffolk. And um, through them, they were mainly dealing in um, herbs initially. Then they took up the salad plants, and um, and they started getting some of these seeds commercially from Italy. And that's how they kind of began to, um, to filter into mainstream um, in the UK.
1: Amazing, uh, Joy. It's incredible. I mean, you totally revolutionised salad purchasing in the UK. then.
2: well, I think I do think we had a big influence. I mean, I, we probably didn't realise at the time we started selling to to um, the, the first whole food shop in London, Whole Foods. You know we did packs of what we called um, saladini. You, you know, those traditional mixtures of mixed salad used in both France and and Italy. And uh, we called our Saladini, which was me mishearing the Italian, which was, should have been in Saladini. I got ticked off by my Italian seedsman later on. <laughs> but we had started selling on a tiny scale. And then Suffolk Herbs, they became great friends and trialled out all our things. And they had loads of our, they were growing all the salad stuff we'd sent them. And someone, I can never remember now, whether it was Marks and Spencer's or... Um, waitress and one of the very big companies went to Suffolk Herbs and saw all these things growing and I opened one of the colour magazines one day and saw this huge spread of stuff saying we've travelled the world and found these salads and brought them back to you and I thought oh no you didn't, you went to to Suffolk Herbs and and you saw all my things growing in their garden (laughs) but that's the way of the world you know. I mean one of the seasons said you should have patented what you found but you, you can't you know and sooner or later, someone would have realized. the. But the other thing related to that is that um, not long after we came back, the um, a V&A exhibition had, a V&A museum had this big exhibition on a thousand years of British gardening. I don't know if you've ever come across that. And Rosemary Veery, who I'm sure lots of you know of, um, was supposed to be doing the vegetable section. and uh, She got in touch with me and um, invited me down to her um, Barnsley house in Gloucestershire. And Rosemary had started collecting the really old gardening books, which until then nobody had put much value on. And she let me loose in her library, dear Rosemary. And by then we were sending lists of our salad packs to London, and a friend was typing out the ingredients, and when I came across these old books, I thought, "Oh my God! In you 1700s, this is what the British were eating, or whatever we were then." <laughs> and and really, I came to the conclusion that that while well, the peasant techniques had never died out on the continent, with the Industrial Revolution, they had died out here. And I kind of jokingly say that you know, Queen Victoria and Brussels sprouts came in, and everything else went out but you know, they're in the past. And I mean, I'm if I dug them out tonight, you probably can't see, but books from 1699 with long lists of salad plants, Batty Langley and Evelyn. And we really had only discovered, rediscovered what had been lost in, in England, collecting wild plants, growing cut and come with seedling crops, using edible flowers. We'd done it all in, before we came industrialized.
1: You, you are not just a gardener, Joy, you are a social historian as well. It's absolutely remarkable. Remarkable.
2: Well, it, it was extraordinary when, when we were, um, a friend in London would would print out the list of what we were putting into our mixed salad packs that we were selling. And um, they, they were so close to what um, we found in these old lists. And then I did go to the, uh, the British Library and then and track down some of the very early writings about salads and so on and I'm I'm not really a historian but it is extraordinary how um, you know you do have to rediscover the wheel from time from time to time and um, it's almost coming back to that again at the moment people going back to more basics and what they can do and prowling around the hedgerows and picking, picking edible plants and cultivating them and so on.
0: It's fascinating hearing you talk about uh that we knew these things or these things were known about 300 400 i mean pre-industrial revolution it, it might surprise you it probably won't surprise you actually joy but hearing you talk was reminding me of when i first moved to norfolk i remember meeting one of those real good old boys um, born and bred in norfolk who had only been to london once and that was during the war and he was growing the uh things that no one else was growing he was growing aubergines and i mean. I know in, in in Norfolk he lived in a house which had a soil floor and a and a toilet at the end of the garden. But he was growing things that everyone else seemed to have forgotten about.
2: <laughs> well, it's, it's it's weird. You do find these odd characters all over the place who have maybe had connections with overseas. I mean, it is extraordinary what you do what you do find. And, and talking of overseas, the other way around, you know, here we are in West Cork where somebody not so long ago came into my greenhouse, when we first arrived, saw a cucumber growing there and said, what's that fella? You know, I mean, he he hadn't actually seen a cucumber. And yet we started growing aubergines and some weird pests comes along that just fancies aubergines. How did it know that suddenly there was going to be this plant that was his natural host growing in this you know, windswept place? There's so much going on that we don't realise.
0: That's extraordinary! Oh, absolutely. That that famous quote from Hamlet: "There are more things in heaven and earth than ever in your philosophy." It's so true, isn't it? And the, but going going back to that, I mean, it um, it's it's extraordinary. I mean, I as as the old as the older partner of the podcast, <laughs> by quite a few decades. Uh, I it's probably impossible for Tim and Rachel to remember that. I mean, in the seventies, if you wanted to get olive oil, I remember trying to make a mayonnaise. The only place you could buy olive oil was in tiny little bottles from Boots, and that was for medication. Um, I mean, can you can you you know talk a little bit more about what was food like in the seventies? What were people growing? What were people eating?
2: Well, I mean, the and the British are extraordinarily. Conservative, but I mean, again, in, in doing research for that VA um, exhibition, you know, I got out loads loads of old books. And all through the centuries, I think I've quoted it somewhere when Queen Anne wanted a salad, she sent to France to get it or something. You know, we, we, and my history is, is hopeless. Rosemary Bailey had a good stab at, you know, teaching me. Somehow I missed out on history, my own education. But um, we do have a, we are exceptionally um, narrow-minded compared to most Europeans, most Western Europeans. I don't know much about Eastern Europe. We really are, you know, you um, we're just very, very conservative, reluctant to try anything new. You know, I think there was something about Cardoons and, you know, some English, you know, saying how very hard it was to introduce these things. The English just, um, we're just innately conservative about vegetables, anyway. Yeah. Um, it's a strange, it's a strange thing. Mm.
0: Um, it's extraordinary when, when you think of two hundred years plus of of colonization. Yeah. That that that, that was the world uh, uh, the, that Britain was trading with the world, but you know, um, what came back? You know, in terms of seeds uh they, they were the botanists, but they were they were exploring the world in a different way, not necessarily around eating. It's extraordinary. After two hundred years of colonialism or more, um the impact on food really came through later. did Well, it?
2: it did, yes. And uh, I mean, I think you mentioned um uh, what's the name? The famous woman writer wrote about the. Men.
0: Oh, Elizabeth David. Elizabeth. Uh, yes, David.
2: I mean she was such an influence on me. You know, I was a wartime baby, and then was you know came to London and, and so on and started reading about things but but her book was kind of critical in in realizing there were other things out there that you could, you know, use and and so on. And and you could just about get them in London as, as well, you know. So it's um it was a learning thing. And being on the continent certainly reinforced our realisation of, you know, what you could do. We always wanted to write a cookbook, but somehow there was no interest um, so we just got this kind of very loose book in which we stuck all the recipes. Um, but certainly our household cooking, and it was done. While we were travelling, he took over the, he totally took over cooking, you know, and uh, and really cooked ever after. Um, so so influenced by what we found and what what just very ordinary people taught us, you know.
0: Yes. and I imagine as well not not just what you found and what you grew but perhaps sharing meals with people and and, and seeing what what the how they were cooking but also what amazing food they were eating
2: yeah I mean one of our wonderful experiences fairly early on in France we'd had contacts we had several contacts we had, could follow up in France and one of them turned out to be a kind of equivalent of a lot of society the French railway workers had a huge network of their own gardens. All, all over France. So we visited quite a few. And somehow we we made an early contact with them and we camped um, on their one, um, funny, it was called Pontoise. it was outside Paris. And the guy running it, I, I'm not sure whether he'd been a trained inspector or what, he was one of these kind of very intelligent working class people who was passionate about food and cooking. And they invited us to a meal where he actually physically made the spoon with which he was going, a, a metal spoon with which he was going, his wife was going to cook some kind of butter. But he he showed us a lot about mushrooms. He gave us a recipe for mushroom velouté soup. We are using ink cap mushrooms. And, you know, it just that was the case where we really learned you know, just from the people we bumped into um, every day, you know.
0: Yeah, I, and I... I... I love that about your writing that that you make that connection with food and the pleasure, the pleasure of having really good, really good produce, good fresh produce, organically grown, and then the flavour. And, and I think one one of the things I love I love about this book, uh, and I think it's well ahead of its time, when I look at other books from the time, is that you write about flavour and you what you write about the varieties that are good for flavour rather than just being resistant to. Light or disease or whatever, and uh, you know, and it's a bible to me for that as well because I'm all about the flavour. <laughs>
2: well, well, thank you because I mean it's taken a long time even for the um, authorities, you know, like the RHS and people, to actually take flavour on board as well as um as well as everything else, you know. Um, and um, it was a long battle with the seed companies, you know, to get them to um. It's a kind of vicious circle because people don't want to try new things, but if they're not out there in the catalogues they don't know they're there to try. So it's a it's a very slow business getting people to change their minds or be be more adventurous. And you know, when you see a whole bunch of yams, I think, oh heck, how do you cook those and, and you know you... <laughs> it's a we all have kind of resistance to new things as well. It's a it's another inbuilt character. Um
0: well, I mean, just thank goodness that you persisted and whatever frustration you felt at the time you you carried on. You obviously knew, you had a conviction that what you were doing was right.
2: Well, I think um, uh, for good or ill, anybody who's had to live with me, I, I do get very obsessive. And uh, I, I'm just about dropping quite a lot of it now in old age. But, um, you know, you just, I'm just obsessive by nature, you know. <laughs>
3: I really loved what you, something you said earlier, Joy, when you commented about um, you sort of having a curiosity gene almost that compelled you to find new things. And I think that really shows through in the way you talk about vegetables and the importance of flavour and sort of your comments about sort of British people being largely conservative in their eating habits. It's really wonderful (laughs) that we have people who are willing to care so much about that. So you're not putting all of your energies growing something that might be blight resistant, but actually tastes mediocre and.
2: Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, the nice thing is that you tend to, um, you know, I, I don't know whether you, you, you you bump into the people who think the same way, you know, one way or another, we ended up in Suffolk, but so many of our friends were people who ran restaurants, so that kind of thing. and um, And, you know, through them, I mean you know I've learned so much from the people that we bumped into particularly in Suffolk I don't know if you ever knew the Singing Chef restaurant when but of course you're not in Suffolk Well, you're in Norfolk well, aren't you? I, I grew up in Suffolk so I do know All yeah. oh, right well, where, where were you? Uh, Ipswich. All oh, right well did you know the Singing Chef the, the, the restaurant there? Maybe that was after when you were still growing up but anyway Ken Toy who was half French who ran that I've forgotten at what point we bumped him to Ken um, but he was a huge help and he used to come when I was first growing the Chinese vegetables and he'd come round the tunnel and taste them and try them out and we did loads of work together he wrote a lot of the recipes in the books I wrote subsequently I didn't know him when I think when I was doing the original salad book but um, people like that you know we learned so much from them and, and he was always willing to try things and and all incorporate the new vegetables into old recipes and treat them in different ways and um and that kind of um the working with people the, you know when you get these constructive working with people with are this interested i mean that's that's so satisfying you know that's a a lovely yeah. aspect of it you know um Ken and I did a lot, and we did a lot um particularly later with the Chinese vegetables introducing them um and then we got seed companies interested, and we did, did demos. That was with the Chinese vegetables with the seed companies, and and that's how slowly they kind of got into the mainstream, really. But working with the Suffolk Herve Seed Company, that was a, a fantastic partnership as well. Yeah,
3: I was going to ask you um, what what sort of you think your your legacy might be in terms of growing things and food stuff that are available to us but i feel like you're continuously answering this question through all of your responses because your legacy seems so obvious to us i think
2: well i suppose i mean a lot has filtered in i mean one of the other things quite probably the food thing is you know even here when i walk into a shop and i see a mixed bag of of salad and stuff which is kind of one, one of the tiny triggers when we were looking for places and we saw him we did walk into a shop and there was one of virtually one of my salads in, the, in a bag in a little shop you know in the middle of nowhere in Clonakilty. oh my god you know and every now and then i see something we introduced that you know you always for, forget you know that that you did and the whole business of cut and come again with growing in in um narrow beds instead of you know spacing things far apart you know I did challenge a lot of the um, accepted methods of growing things uh, in some ways. And I suppose the other thing is the whole idea of making vegetable gardens beautiful. Because, you know, on the trip, I did, I suppose a lot of people have heard of Ville now, you know, the Loire Valley, the beautiful Renaissance garden you know, where the flowers and fruit and everything are integrated. And that triggered that in my mind and then getting to know Rose Reverie and her lovely potage in Gloucester. And the whole idea that vegetables shouldn't just be sh- shoved at the back and out of sight. And uh, so many are intrinsically beautiful and you can grow them in beautiful patterns and have fun, you know. Um, now that's become almost mainstream now. You see it all over the place, you know. So, so that's a kind of nice bit of legacy as, as well, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope... Hope some of that lives on. I think it definitely I think
3: it definitely (laughs) does and will. And for someone like me, because I love vegetable growing, but I love all plants, well, nearly all plants, and I love the sort of feel of being in a, a beautiful space. So the fact that I'm not completely scorned by all the other allotment holders because I've tried to make a an allotment plot that has flowers and vegetables growing in different ways or stuff for bees and pollinators and it's not just row upon row and that's brilliant and fine in its own right but I feel like there is a legacy from people like you sort of introducing these ideas and making it more acceptable to care about those things as well I suppose.
2: Yeah oh well thank you I mean it's nice that the organic was so considered so way out you know um, when I was first writing and um, I think I've mentioned somewhere that it's always appealed to me the idea of I mean, I'm hopeless that, I kind of have a scientific curiosity, but unfortunately a, a literary mind, not a scientific mind at all, you know, struggled to even, you know, work out what a postage stamps worth. But um early on early on when I was I think I had this thing of just living by what you had. And and I do remember um Um, I went to my college. It was a very scientific course. So, you know, I've kind of been programmed for three years to think in terms of science and chemicals and so on. And I don't know if I have told the story quite often, but when we moved to our farm eventually and the baby arrived, and I went out to spray the apple trees with tar oil wash, which is what you did in those days. And I turned around and realised I completely sprayed my baby he was covered in big black spots and I felt I felt so guilty I thought i done to my baby you know and I think that was the last time I ever used a chemical spray I have to say that of all the family he's probably done best in the world if you go by um you know success so perhaps you didn't perhaps everybody should go around spraying their babies I don't know <laughs> but I did I did, decide from that time onwards, I'm not using, I'm not using sprays. And so I've been um, organic. And the organic growers were much mocked. You know, I was one of the few people who covered the early organic growers conference um, meetings down in Sire and the for the main press. And, you know, we were called, I've forgotten the names that they called us now. But, you know, there was a lot of scorn poured on people who were organic. And now that's, you know, I, I think the RHS now say the slugs are good. What if that's not the wheel coming full circle? I don't know what, what is really. You know, times, times have changed a lot. And, and a lot of what was way out is mainstream again.
1: Well, you seem to have been ahead of the curve on so many things. That must be incredibly satisfying personally to see all that come true. What what do you think has been the most satisfying thing in your gardening and your writing career?
2: It's very hard to put your finger on it. I mean, I've just, I, I've loved it, and I love the way it's it took us, um, partly the lecturing. I suppose the research took me all over the world. I became very, very interested in the Chinese vegetables. But also the lecturing took us all over the world to see things that we've Meet people. Meet people on. It's such a common ground, you know. As I think we mentioned earlier. You you just you cut all the faff. You escape all the tourism. You're just talking to real people about real things, so quickly and making common bonds. You know, um, we have had friends just all over the world and insight into things happening. I think that's a that's been a lovely a lovely aspect of it. it it has been great fun, the growing's been been great fun you're always learning, that as soon as you meet a gardener who knows the answers you should become very suspicious because there are no answers and there are fewer and fewer now with climate change, What what worked last year isn't working this year and nobody knows why, you know, you just I think you have to be continually humble and continually open to what other people are doing and their problems and um different ways of looking at things and using things, even different ways of using plants you know you go to china and they're using all the bits that we throw out you know it's um it's it's such an infinite field that there's huge rewarding it's hugely rewarding from that point of view i was going to say i'm sure you find the lovely um, camaraderie working on a lot not the the way people help each other out and... Uh,
1: Absolutely, the, the allotment is it's one of the best things about it. All I,
2: I think one of the we haven't touched on it really, because we're talking about the Grand Vegetable Tour mostly, but subsequently I spent a lot of time going to the States, um, partly because, you know, it's another market for books and so on. But the I, I've been, I think, so moved by the community gardens I went to in, in America. And again and again there were people who were living in high-rise flats where drug pushing was going on in in vacant ground nearby which was probably owned by bankers and how people took them over and made tiny little tiny little gardens you know some size of a table i remember arriving once coming straight off a plane and going to a community garden and people saying oh our plots here they're huge and and it was the size of a table, but on into that tiny bit, the people had planted things, you know, they came from the Caribbean, they planted a bit of everything. And then they had community centres there, they'd have workshops. They were just um, amazing, amazing places. And um, just uh, incredible outlets for people who were oppressed and so on. They, um, What was achieved in those little plots of land was just so so amazing and so moving and, and yet the struggles going you know they were being bought up the owners were evicting people and so on you know it was a a struggle but it brought people together and um i learned a huge amount from from the community gardens i saw in in, in the states in particular
0: yeah but that but it's one of the things you know you, you just started touching on a, a lot of things that will be really interesting to go on to talk about and hopefully we'll cover that in in the next uh, episode of the next meeting and I think you know what you say about community gardens is is just so important I've been inspired by for example the, in Cuba how all public spaces roundabouts and things like that they, they make into community gardens and, and for everyone to, to have the produce so I think you know, we've spent some time looking back, and that's been really invaluable and, and so exciting to hear it straight from you. Uh, but the next one, yes, it will be interesting to talk about where we are now and where things are going, and and uh, and the future in terms of climate change and organic gardening and so on. We're
2: talking of um, roundabouts, one of the lovely things in um, uh, uh, in Seattle at one point there were loads and loads of roundabouts, and one night all the pumpkin a uh, pumpkin community came and planted pumpkins on all the roundabouts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. absolutely really We're going to do that here. <laughs> yeah, we are,
2: Absolutely. We're just making sure they're well-moused. <laughs> it's lovely
1: talking to all you enthusiastic people out there. I wish you I could come and help dig my garden.